devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil You're listening to the Reform University Fellowship Podcast at the University of Oklahoma with campus minister On today's podcast, you'll be listening to Dr. Oz Guinness. RUF at OU was a key player in bringing Oz Guinness to our campus in something called the Veritas Forum. The Veritas Forum started in the 1990s in Harvard by a woman who noticed when she was in college that truth was sort of hanging out there. Veritas is the logo of Harvard, but it's not really connected to anything. And she wanted to have people discuss what is truth and what is the meaning of truth. And she gathered people together and professors together and got a tremendous response. Since then, the Veritas Forums have spread throughout the United States and and really the world. And so we wanted to have one of these in RUF, we, we helped and we planned and we worked together with other campus ministries to bring Oz to OU. He spoke on the topic of where is God in suffering and evil. This was a lecture that, that I thought maybe a hundred or so people would come to, but we had over 300 people attend, packed out a lecture hall. Oz Guinness spoke on this topic that you're about to hear, and then he answered questions for about 30 minutes. It was a tremendous success. We plan to have more in the future. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast lecture by Oz Guinness. But I'll take your bet you're going to regret because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, you're awesome. You're a poet. Play your fiddle hard. The topic you've asked me to speak on is a deep one. And let's start by saying Nobody has all the answers on this issue. And I don't for a minute claim to have all the answers. But it's an issue I've thought about a lot. And so, as Doug said, we are here to invite us all into a conversation about the big questions of human life. And there is no bigger question than the mystery and the challenge of both evil and suffering. The day after 9-11, I was on ABC. Where was God when the tower fell? The reporter afterwards apologized. She said, I know you can't answer that in a soundbite, but I had to ask it like that. Exactly the same question was asked to me in 2005 after the East Asian tsunami. Where was God when the wave hit? Now you think, Suffering and evil, which are not the same, in a minute we'll see the difference, are truly the greatest mystery we humans face in life. Evil is the greatest challenge of our modern world. And as these things are hitting us, they're capturing America at a moment when American thinking is both confused and has slipped. If you're thinking... America is a country with a dark view of evil at the heart of its constitution. Separation of powers, checks and balances. Why? Because of a human capacity for evil. And yet since the founders put that in, all sorts of things have flowed through America. Notions like progressivism, we're all getting better and better. Or in the 1950s, at a very different level, Pollyannaism. 
And smiley buttons can be plastered all over life. Then more recently, postmodernism. Where with many people now, it is worse to judge evil than it is to do evil. Because part of postmodernism, none of us are free to judge. And you can see the extraordinary confusions intellectually and at other levels about how to handle the very real evil that comes in our human world. So let's think it through tonight. There are no experts on evil. Several times I've had the privilege of meeting people like Elie Wiesel, whom I deeply admire. He is someone who's looked evil in the white of the eye in Auschwitz and the death camps. I haven't. My parents, who lived through some of China's most extraordinary atrocities, including the rape of Nanking, my parents really had. And I was brought up from the youngest age to have a picture of humanity that was immensely realistic. But I'm not an expert in evil, and there aren't any experts in evil. But reading books, reading philosophers, talking to thousands of people in my own life, I thought that there are certain basic questions that we have to think through and if you follow along and think these through, just starting as human beings, which is what links us all, if you think them through, you can come to your own realistic and hopefully hopeful view of looking evil in the white of the eye. So I'm assuming nothing tonight, except that we're all human beings, interested in the meaning of life and engaging the big questions of life. The first step, I think, is to recognize the sources. Recognize the sources, step one. What do I mean? The ultimate question about evil is, whence evil? Or in Latin, unde malum. The simple fact is that no one fully, finally knows. Jews and Christians, for instance, take it that Evil has entered planet Earth through the fall of human beings as described in Genesis 3. But the Bible never says a word about how the evil one himself fell. How exactly did evil enter the cosmos? We don't know. We know it entered planet Earth if you follow the Jewish and Christian picture. But where did it ultimately come from? We don't know. And no philosophy. No religion truly knows. But what we do know is how they come into our lives immediately and approximately. And there are three sources. One, our own bodies. Two, nature. And three, the biggest one of all, our fellow human beings. Now just think of those three for a minute or two. How suffering, for instance, comes in through our own bodies. One thing that unites every one of us in the room is that any of us may suffer and all of us will die. If you've seen the ad for Marriott, which you have in your own airport here, about the human battery, it says infinitely rechargeable. Absolute nonsense. All our power packs one day will run out. Now, the fact is, before we were born any number of dysfunctions could come in, or we might have been aborted. 
And after we're born, all sorts of other possibilities come in, including things like heart attacks and cancer. There's a story of Sir Winston Churchill, who was key to the Allied victory in World War II. But ten years earlier, he visited New York, and forgetting for a moment which side of the traffic flowed on in America, unlike England, he stepped across the street in Upper East Side of New York and was knocked down by a car that was speeding, almost killed. One of the big what-ifs of history. He said afterwards when he recovered, I could have been broken like an eggshell and squashed like a gooseberry. Now that, of course, is our little bodies. And you can see, for instance, how many of the massacres, if you followed the horrors in Rwanda, those who were taunting and inciting the horrendous things that happened kept on referring to their enemies' bodies as things like cockroaches, easily smashed and ruined and killed. Our little bodies, that's one source. And of course we know today it includes our minds. I don't know if any of you have seen the film Iris. When I was at Oxford, Iris Murdoch, great modern woman philosopher, who had written more than 26 books, was just beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's. And Iris is the story of her husband looking after her. As in his words, she sailed into the darkness. Here was a woman of an incredible mind. But it was going. And you can see that much of our suffering comes very simply from the fragility and vulnerability of our own little bodies. The second source is equally obvious, especially in our world. Think of the Haitian earthquake just recently. The huge forces of nature. I don't know how many of you have been really close, maybe to a tornado, maybe to a hurricane, maybe to an earthquake, maybe to a tsunami. I was born in China. We lived not only through the rape of Nanking, but there was one period in World War II when my family lived through a famine in Henan province in which five million died in three months, including my two brothers. And my mother was a surgeon. But she said she could have been a stockbroker or a ballet dancer for all the use she was as a surgeon when there was no food and there was no medicine. And people were just dying like flies. And in the face of that famine, just as the people discovered in the tsunami or whatever, humans are incredibly small and incredibly fragile and vulnerable. But there's no question that the third source is by far the most murderous, our fellow human beings. We have just finished the most murderous century in all human history. Somewhere between 100 and 150 million were killed in war. Another 100 million under political repression. And a further 100 million in ethnic and sectarian violence. You can see, as G.K. Chesterton said, we talk about wild animals, but Humans are the wildest animal of all. You remember Ambrose Bierce, your own American cynic, who said the defining feature of humanity is inhumanity. 
The question really is not only where is God when many of these things happen, but what does it say of us that it's the same species that we are that are doing these things, including the Oklahoma City bombing? Now, that first step, recognize the sources, doesn't take us very far, but it should at least give us, on the one hand, realism, and on the other hand, the beginnings, one hopes, of a sense of compassion. Realism. We cannot afford in the human world to be unrealistic and naive and Pollyannas. Evil, for all the glory of humanity, and there is a glory to humanity. Evil is always still there. But hopefully, too, it awakens the beginning of a sense of compassion, if only because we hope that if we're in a situation like that, someone would reach out to us, and so we're prepared today to reach out to them. Step one, recognize the sources. Now, you need to think through a lot longer than that. I'm speaking fast and generalizing a lot. Step two, Listen to the questions. Listen to the questions. All suffering is unique. And it's an insult to speak to people as if they're like everyone else. But that said, if you listen to people in the face of terrible evil or terrible suffering, instinctively, irrepressibly, automatically, questions bubble up in the heart, in the mind. And there are certain commonalities across all the questions. And you can really boil these down to three very deep and very basic questions. Why me? Where's God? And how can I stand it? Think of those three again for a minute or two. Why me? I read a story not long ago about a professor up in the Northwest who was homeschooling his kids. He packed them in a minivan with his wife and his mother and drove to a Native American reservation. Had a fascinating day telling them about the Native American way of life. And after the powwow which ended the day, they piled into their minivan and drove back to go home. And just two minutes down the road or so, a drunken local with his drunken wife plowed into them. And in a terrible 90 seconds of carnage, all the women in his family were killed. His daughters, his wife, and his mother. And the sons and the father were left. But their minds were like squirrels in a cage going round and round, kept saying, if only we'd done this, if only we'd done that, if we'd just stayed another... Five minutes of the powwow, or the man had drunk one more beer, or one less beer, or if we'd spent more time putting gas in our... All these sort of things, mom would have been alive. And the question, why them? Why not us? Tortured them. Solzhenitsyn, if you read his story in the Gulag Archipelago, and his other stories like the Oak and the Calf, he describes how millions were dying around him in the camps in the Gulag. And he was given three weeks to live with a terrible cancer. And he survived. And he says, why me? Why not me? Believing he was left as a witness to the dying whispers of millions 
around him. I often think, why did I live? And my two brothers are gone, buried in China. You can see that someone who goes through some shocking accident or whatever it is, three soldiers go over the brow of the hill, two of them killed instantly. And the third one lives, unscathed, except for a lifetime of nightmares. Why not me? Why them? When something like that happens, you can see that we all take life for granted. And particularly in the West, we prize things like control and being in control of our lives. And then something, something happens and a nervousness comes in. Life appears terribly random. And there's even, in the worst cases, a terror of what might hit us again at some point. Why me? Deeply important question. Second question, equally has to be answered, where's God? And you can see the logic of that. Something happens when evil or suffering breaks in that is so irrational and so unjust, there must be an explanation. There must be some court to which you can go to appeal. And so you want to ask and ask and ask and hold someone responsible. Someone must carry the can. And ultimately, God. As we all know, Atheists who don't believe in God blame God when they hit the deep ones. Baudelaire, if there's a God, he's the devil. Stondahl, the only excuse for God, he doesn't exist. And you can see many, many atheists who, in moments of anguish, cry out against a God that they don't believe in because someone somewhere must be responsible for this horrendous whatever. Now, it isn't only atheists, of course. Believers, in whatever faith, cry out in anguish. And people who are followers of Jesus recognize humbly that that same cry comes from Jesus himself. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Where is God? A very natural and important cry from the human heart. How about the third question? How can I stand it? If you're thinking along with me, that question sounds the most practical. And it is. When people are suffering, they want to get through the pain, get through the darkness, get through it. And often it's incremental truisms or short things they can hang on to to get through the night, to get through the day, or whatever it is. It is very practical. But actually, if you're thinking, that question is also the most philosophical. Because when you're really hurting, you need to know why in the very deepest fiber of your being it's worth living, not dying. That's why Albert Camus says the basic philosophical question is suicide. What he meant was, when you're tempted to take your life and end it all, because life means nothing, what is it then that says, no, life is worth living? And it's at that moment when you're tempted with the supreme act of taking your own life or giving up on life. If you really know why, then you can go on. As Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live for can bear any how. One of the most challenging things about the death camps 
to atheists is that it was atheist intellectuals who committed suicide in the biggest numbers. They couldn't handle it. You have many of the great intellectuals who went through Auschwitz. Jean Améry, Bruno Bettelheim, or Primo Levi. Primo Levi, for instance, is the Italian equivalent of Elie Wiesel. There was one terrible moment in Auschwitz when he was deeply thirsty and there was a lovely icicle outside his, his hut. And he reached out for it as if it was a cold drink in the purity of all the mess around. But as he reached out his hand, the guard saw it, smashed the icicle to the ground so he couldn't get it. And Levy cried out, why? And the guard said to him with a cold brutality, here, there is no why. Levy survived. He survived 46 years after Auschwitz. And he became one of the leading witnesses so that it would be never again. But even after all that, there was a day in which he phoned his rabbi in Rome and took his own life. He had no deep why. And one of the great challenges to atheists is in Auschwitz, many ordinary people survived. The poorest category of people who didn't and took their own lives in Auschwitz or after Auschwitz were atheist intellectuals who had no deep why to know how they could stand it. Now, we're not exploring that in any more depth. But clearly, those questions, listen to the questions, they are what has to be answered if we're to face suffering and evil with hope and realism. Step three. Consider the impact of modernity on evil. It's clear that there's more evil in our modern world than certainly the Enlightenment ever expected, probably most people ever expected. And the question rises, are we modern people more evil or are we just more modern? Well, I think the second is true. I personally don't think we're any more evil, but you can see the rise of our modern world, the rise of everything, say, since the Industrial Revolution, in many ways, has an enormous impact on evil. And this is worth thinking through, too. Take three areas, you can see this. The first is actually good, but with one downside. The modern world minimizes pain. And that, of course, is good. Take a couple of obvious things. The invention of anesthesia in the 1830s and the invention of the humble aspirin in the 1880s and 90s. Historians said around the beginning of the 20th century, for the first time in human history, many adults in the modern world could live all their lives without any pain. And that, of course, is good. Thank God. But there's a downside. That's one of the main reasons why modern people, and certainly Americans, are so unrealistic about evil. My two brothers died. I was brought up with death all around me. If you look in history, say Queen Anne, 
14 of her children died young. Very few of you, I imagine, have known death in your families. Now, thank God for that. But you can see how many Americans and how many people in the modern world grow up with an amazing lack of realism about evil and suffering. It's in our world. But not surprisingly, many people's lives are still plastered with smiley buttons. You wouldn't have smiley buttons plastering life if you lived in Rwanda or China or Bangladesh or many other places like that. They'd be far more realistic than to have stuff like that. The second and third impact of the modern world are not so good. The second is that the modern world magnifies destructiveness. Now, when I say that, I'm sure some of you think immediately, ah, nuclear weapons. No. Nuclear weapons have not actually killed very many people. And only one country, yours, has used them. Thank God none of the tyrants of the 20th century, Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, had their hands on nuclear weapons. Actually, 20th century destructiveness has come from a different area. It's come from modern management, modern insights, modern technologies. So one of the lessons, say, of the death camps was that while there were a few monsters, Hitler, Goering, people like that, most of the evil was done by, quote, good Germans, just doing their job. But the death camps were run like a Volkswagen factory or a chemical factory with the same division of responsibilities, diffusion of responsibilities, division of labor and so on so that many good people did these horrendous things or things that had profoundly evil effects, but they weren't intending to do evil, and they weren't even aware in many cases how evil were the things that they were doing. And you can see today, say, you press a button that can wipe out an entire town, the same press of a button is exactly the same as pressing the button on an elevator. And when you're pressing a button from a bomber at 29,000 feet or whatever, there's a distancing from the act and the effect. You don't feel the same responsibility as when you're seeing someone in the white of the eye. And you can see how many of our modern management issues and technology and so on has distanced us from the effects of what we do and made possible a huge magnification of evil. The third way the modern world has had an impact on evil is to marginalize traditional ways of seeing things. You can see, for instance, today in America, you have something like the Columbine shooting. And certainly a good number of pastors, say, came in, or priests, but also hundreds of grief counselors all around America with their different ways of telling people therapeutically how they were to do it. And the pastors were shunted to one side and the grief counselors took the central role. And of course, it's not only people, it's also ideas. And in the postmodern world, as I said, thou shalt not judge is become the 11th commandment. And you can see in more and more areas of American society 
how notions like sin or right and wrong and true and false have gone out the window. And all sorts of other things have come in. One scholar points out that in much of our entertainment world, you have people who take great delight in flouting conventions and breaking taboos and crossing boundaries and so on. So we can do everything now, say Tarantino's films with their violence. And America, through video games and all sorts of things, has actually got to the place where we can make evil cool. And that's very dangerous for any culture. And you can see how in many ways our modern world has amplified evil. So I don't think we're more evil. But we've certainly got a lot more evil because we are more modern. Step four. You follow along with me and you've got to do the thinking yourself. I'm just giving you the outline. You think it through, talk to your friends and see how you come out on all these issues. Step four, an absolutely crucial one. Assess the different interpretations. George Steiner, the great literary critic, says as human beings, we're not so much homo sapiens as homo quarens. The animal that asks and asks. In my field, the social sciences, we say that every human being needs, on the one hand, meaning, on the other hand, belonging. We want to make sense of our world. We want to find security in life. And when you look for the big answers, the answers that give you an answer to all the littler questions in life, you can see that people look at the philosophies of life or worldviews. They're looking at the different faiths and fundamentally religions to give you a sense of what it's all about. And of course, the adequacy, the illuminating power of any faith is its capacity to answer the big questions and there's no bigger question than evil. Now, for all practical purposes, while there are a thousand and one faiths in the world, I've just picked that number out of the air, there are only three big families of faiths. By which I mean faiths which have a common family resemblance because they all go back to the same source of ultimate reality as they see it. And when you see it that way, you see that the big three families of faiths in the modern world, and much of the ancient world too, are the Eastern, the Secularist, and the Abrahamic. Now, we haven't time to look at this in depth. So your challenge is to look for yourself. You read the great masters, the great thinkers from each of these families and see which one you think gives you the deepest, most realistic, most hopeful assessment of evil and suffering in human life. I'm a follower of Jesus. I make no bones about that. But I've lived... Ten years of my life in a Buddhist culture, I studied under a guru when I was in my 20s in Rishikesh in India. I read voluminously in the Eastern religions. I'm not an Eastern follower. You make it out for yourself. But let me make a few remarks about this. I would give the East high marks for realism. Buddhism is a religion-sized answer to evil and suffering. I give it full marks for realism. The basic problem, as Buddhism sees it, is dukkha, affliction. 
as Gautama Buddha said it. But in the Eastern picture, and there's a commonality between Buddhism and Hinduism, what drives the world, as we're caught in this world of illusion or maya, what drives the world is desire, which leads to craving, which leads to attachment, which binds us to the wheel of life. And as you know, in the East, unlike California, reincarnation is not groovy man, groovy. Reincarnation means going round and round, Hindus say maybe 35,000 times. And the problem in the Eastern religion is not death, it's rebirth. So how do we escape from the wheel, from being caught in this world of maya or illusion? Well, for Buddhists, the path is towards nirvana, which again sounds groovy in English, but actually means in Buddhism, the great deathless lake of extinction. If you read the story of Buddha, when he was enlightened under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, he didn't say, I am liberated. He said, it is liberated. He had reached the not-self. His own son, whom he abandoned, he called Rahula, the ball and chain, the fetter. One of his followers, the great Buddha Goza, said, I am nowhere a somewhatness for anyone. D.T. Suzuki, the great Zen master, said, the goal of Zen is not incarnation, that's Christian. The goal of Zen is excarnation. And you can see, if you trace it, in both Hinduism and Buddhism, freedom is not freedom to be an individual, it's freedom from individuality, because being an individual is what keeps us bound to the wheel and caught in the world of illusion. So, while I give them full marks for realism, you will not find in either Hinduism or Buddhism any picture of a world beyond suffering. Or any picture, finally, of a world of freedom and justice. You look at it for yourself. Or take the second family of faith, secularism. Atheism, agnosticism, materialism, naturalism, and so on. You know many people around you. We have today Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, many people trumpeting this. My life, when I was a student at London, I knew Bertrand Russell, one of the great champion atheistic humanists of the 20th century. When I was at Oxford, later I knew Professor Sir Alfred Eyre, another of the great atheists who was the author of the verification principle, logical positivism, and so on. And I know a little bit of Christopher Hitchens. If you look at the atheistic worldview, the secularist worldview, Everything comes from chance. We're the product of chance plus time plus matter. So as they say quite openly, there is no meaning in the universe. So if we want meaning, we have to create it for ourselves. And Bertrand Russell's picture was of Atlas, the Greek giant, who created his own world and carried it on his own shoulders. It's all do-it-yourself. It's not discover meaning, it's create it for yourself. Now, secularism, unlike Buddhism and Hinduism, does not renounce the world, does not detach from the world. This world is all there is. So they fight, I think, heroically against all that they think is wrong. Russell was a passionate campaigner for nuclear disarmament, although he admitted towards the end of his life that he read a couple of novels every week. 
using fiction to take his mind off the apocalyptic visions of the end of the world. And he not only began with chance, his vision of life, if you read his famous essay, A Free Man's Worship, leads to ultimate extinction. And his philosophy of life, as he says in that essay, is built on the firm foundations, I'm quoting, of unyielding despair. My hero before I came to faith was Albert Camus. I loved his passion compared to the coldness of, say, Jean-Paul Sartre. But Camus had his greatest picture of all this in The Plague, which I'm sure many of you have read. And you know in The Plague, a plague has broken out in Iran and North Africa. And Dr. Rieu is the protagonist who fights it for all his work. And it's heroic. It's noble. He's outraged by the death of any fellow human being. So he pours himself into helping everyone he can in the plague. Magnificent story. But in the quiet of the night, as he talked to his friends, say, one night after burying one of his closest friends, he says, I know I face unyielding... No, that's Russell. I know that I will never succeed and I will face only forlorn resignation. No hope. Now, why? in the atheist position. You can read any number of them, and they say the reason is this, that existence itself is the error. In other words, evil is natural to the world as it is. The major sin, Samuel Beckett said, the author of Waiting for Godot, the major sin is being born. Evil and existence are tied together. And if they are, you can fight it heroically, but your fight is absurd. You know Camus' famous picture of Sisyphus, condemned to roll that boulder up the hill, rolls down again, roll it up again, rolls down again, and so on. Eventually, he can love the stone so much, he's almost tied to it. But I rebel, therefore I exist, as he says. And it's interesting that Sartre said at the end of his life, atheism is a cruel long-term business. He said, I know because I've been through it to the end. Many American atheists are, I call suburban atheists. They haven't really thought through the full logic of atheism, where it comes from, where it leads, what are the prospects for humanity, who they are in such a world, and so on. But by all means, look at that. Heroic answers. But at the end of the day, I think, forlorn. How about the third family of faiths, the Abrahamic? Too much to say there, but let me just pick out one part. The greatest challenge against the Abrahamic faiths is what's called the trilemma. The trilemma. You know, a dilemma has two horns. A trilemma has three And way back with Epicurus, and certainly people in the 18th century like David Hume, or 20th century philosophers like J.L. Mackey, have all said that the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, cannot escape the trilemma. Can evil be truly evil? And God be all good? And God be all powerful? How do you put those three together? Now, the obvious way out is to relax one of them. That's what Rabbi Kushner does in his book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? 
Evil is terribly evil. God is all good, but he's not all powerful. That is not, despite him being a rabbi, that is not the biblical position. The biblical position, I think, is fascinating. The Bible stresses all three of those, but it gives them a twist that turns them from a dilemma into a reassurance. And let me just take the first of those, and you may want to pick up more in the discussion. Is evil really evil? What's the difference in the biblical view, say, in the secularist view, that existence and evil are one? So if you're fighting evil, you're fighting what is. In the biblical view, evil is terribly evil, but it should have been otherwise. It was not supposed to be this way. It was once not this way, and one day it will not be this way. But evil came in through human choice, but evil is a gatecrasher, a party pooper. It's alien, it's a disruptive force. So when you fight against it, you're fighting against something which should have been otherwise, was not supposed to be this way. I was taken down to Oklahoma City this morning to look at the memorial. I'm sure you've all been there. And also to look at the statue, Jesus wept. Many of you know the Gospel of John. You know where that comes from, the famous shortest verse in the Bible. What many people don't know is that same passage where Jesus of Nazareth stands before the tomb of his very good friend Lazarus, who's died prematurely. It does say Jesus wept. But three times in the passage it says, Jesus was furious. That's actually more significant. One word is used twice. It's a word that Aeschylus uses of Greek war horses hearing the trumpet sound for battle, rearing up on their hind legs, snorting through their nostrils, and charging into battle. And it's the strongest word the Greeks had for furious indignation. That's the word used twice of Jesus. Here he is, as the Bible said, the world was made good. Very good but now has been marred by human evil and sin. And when the Son of God enters the world, he doesn't thank God for this thing. He is livid. And I thank God when I look at Jesus to see God's face wet with tears, God's face flushed with anger. Why? In the biblical view, error and existence are not one. It should have been otherwise. It's alien. It's outrageous. And when we grieve and when we're angry or whatever it is, we actually feel the same way that God does. It's only part of the story, but a very, very important part of it. A fifth step, again, rather fast. But you think through that crucial fourth step. Think through all the earlier steps and then say, which of the great worldviews, philosophies of life, faiths, gives you the deepest, most adequate answer to evil. The fifth step is to take the appropriate action. Take the appropriate action. Now, let me speak openly here as a Christian, because you can see in our Western civilization, no civilization in human history has a record of recurring reforms like Western civilization. You can see from the banning of infanticide down through Bartolome Las Casas tackling the conquistadores or William Wilberforce fighting for abolition or Martin Luther King and civil rights. 
until the current generation, almost all the great reform movements in our Western history, which are unique in history, were inspired by Christian faith and led by people of profound faith, with good reason. Let me just say three things that come into it in terms of taking appropriate action with really engaging with evil and fighting it. The first is the need for a sense of realism. I begin there quite deliberately. It doesn't sound like anything very courageous. The worst evils are done by utopians. Utopianism is the greatest danger of all. You can see it in Mao Zedong. It was his utopian vision that he had a clean slate and he would remake China in his poetic vision of it that meant that 75 million of his fellow Chinese were slaughtered. Utopianism is the worst evil. The second worst evil is what's called dualism. In other words, people who divide the world into we, they. They are the baddies and we are good. And if we're fighting for good things, we're fighting for freedom, obviously we can do anything tackling them. Dualism lacks realism too. And Christians should begin with the fact that every one of us, including the would-be reformers, we have the evil and the capacity for evil in our own hearts. You remember the great lines of Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. The lesson he learned lying in the straw was that the line between good and evil does not run down between nations or between classes, but goes down every single human heart. So I hate, for instance, sex trafficking and fight things like that. But I've got to remember, I have the same heart as the people who are putting forward the evil that I'm fighting. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian journalist of the last century, the London Times sent round a question to British intellectuals, what's wrong with the world? And invited their answers. Many of them gave long, elaborate, flowery answers of what was wrong with the world. Chesterton just sent back a postcard. Dear sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And that's actually a humility and a realism that any of us who want to fight evil have to begin with. It's in my heart too. The second thing sounds also that it doesn't go too far, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness sounds airy-fairy, but if you think of how evil is done and then revenge and resentment and all sorts of things come in, you can see how a Corsican blood feud effect comes in and evil just ricochets round. What cuts it off? What liberates us from the past and injury? What cuts off the future and opens up second chances but genuine forgiveness? Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's dismissing the right to hold that injury. Any of you ever read The Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal, the great Jewish Nazi hunter? He tells the extraordinary story. I'll condense it very fast. In World War II, he was in a camp, drawn aside one day in a work detail, taken past the hospital, which was once his high school, and he was brought out of the group. He thought they were going to kill him by himself, but he was taken into the hospital, eventually into a tiny little ward where there was a dying SS officer. Swathed in bandages, hideously burnt, 
obviously very close to death. And the man reaches out the shaking hand and says, I've asked for you to come because I wanted to confess to a Jew about the Jews I murdered. About 20 or so. Again, to cut a long story short, Simon Wiesenthal listens to him and brushes him off and leaves the room. No forgiveness. And he says, at the end of the story, what could I have done? What should I have done? What would you have done? And then he invited 50 or so world leaders, Dalai Lama, all sorts of people, to answer the question. And it's interesting, not one of the Jews said that he should have been forgiven. There's a cold finality to their answers. But Desmond Tutu and the Chicago theologian Martin Marty say no. Christians forgive not because they're heroic. That's the humanist view of forgiveness. Christians forgive because they've been forgiven something far greater. And that forgiveness cuts off the ball and chain of the past and opens up a genuine second chance possibility for the future. And that costly forgiveness is what behind the South African miracle of Nelson Mandela forgiving what was done to him on Robben Island and many other places. And if any of you know the story of Rwanda's conciliation or have seen Laura Waters' Oscar-winning film, As We Forgive, that's what's happening in Rwanda as the victims of that terrible genocide are coming to forgive the perpetrators of that terrible genocide, opening up a genuine reconciliation and the possibility of peace. And any of us who goes in to struggle with evil, we will be injured, we will be insulted, we will have all sorts of things done to us. And forgiveness is an incredible part of going forward without just perpetuating the wrong. But the third part, of course, is the courage to step out and take action. And you can see in the Old Testament, if we see someone being hurried away to destruction, we do nothing. As bystanders, we are responsible. And, of course, your generation is growing up in a world in which, through globalization the media, we see everything as it happens in our modern world. And so the challenge of responsibility today is amplified enormously. But we dare not be bystanders. And we dare not, dare not mouth pious platitudes like never again and then let it happen all over again. We have got to take appropriate action. Now before I throw it open to you, let me just finish with this thought. As I said, evil is the greatest mystery of human life the greatest challenge in our modern world. And, of course, it's a profound challenge to our human trust for some of us in God himself, for others just in this planet home in which we want to make our living. The deepest, darkest challenge to faith after the murderous 20th century was expressed by Max Adorno in his simple line, after Auschwitz, there cannot be God. He not only said, after Auschwitz, there cannot be a God. After Auschwitz, there cannot be poetry. After Auschwitz, there cannot be love. In other words, we've seen something so malevolent 
so malignant, so monstrous. That's why I called my book Unspeakable. That none of these things like faith in God or faith in love or faith in beauty are possible. What's the answer to that? The best answer actually comes from Viktor Frankl. Frankl, as you know, was a Jewish psychiatrist who was in Auschwitz. And Frankl answers that in two ways. He said, first, those who say that, and there are many campus people who repeat that, those who say that simply were not in Auschwitz. He said, in Auschwitz, more people deepened their faith and discovered faith than lost it. And they needed it to get through Auschwitz. And then he finishes, this is not in his Man's Search for Meaning, but his last book, Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning, published after he died. He has this beautiful little picture with which I'll finish. He said, if you have an inadequate faith, it's like a little fire. And a little breeze can blow out a little fire. But that's inadequate faith. It can't stand up to evil or suffering. But he said, if you have a true faith, it's like a strong fire. And a strong wind blowing on a strong fire will only turn it into a stronger blaze than ever. And when I read that, I thought of my own mother and her descriptions of China in the Japanese war and in that famine and then the rape of Nanking and then the communist victory in the beginning of the terrible repression. My mother used to say it was actually in the nightmare of those horrendous conditions that her faith in God became unmistakably, unshakably real. Atheists claim that evil is the rock of atheism. Not so. As I said, more atheists took their lives because they couldn't handle it. Properly understood, even evil and suffering can be a rock for faith for those who know God. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Oklahoma. Stay tuned this summer for more podcasts, including interviews with Norman pastors about the effects of RUF, senior speeches, and This American Life, RUF Edition, Summer Conference 2010. If you'd like to donate to RUF, please click the donate link at www.ruf.org and specify the University of Oklahoma and Doug Servan. To check our local RUF website, go to www.ouruf.org. We look forward to next semester as campus minister Doug Servan presents his sermon series on the book of Philippians. God bless you.